Welcome to the Parasite Podcast. I'm Sherry. And I'm Marie. And today we're going to do part two of an imperfect crime. If you haven't listened to the first part, go back and take a listen. We'll wait. You may recall from our last episode, Richard hasn't killed anyone yet, but he has been into quite a bit of mischief. He has pled guilty to several counts of exploiting elderly people and fraudulent taking. He was given two weeks to get his affairs in order before he went to prison, and his mother put up a big bond and bought him a car, and now he's staying with her. And how is that going? Well, I guess it's going okay. It sounds like he spent his time trying to win back the affections of his now ex-wife. He spent some time with his children. He was drinking heavily, and he was trying to orchestrate an escape. Ring around the rosy, a pocket full of posies. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. <laughs> Shirley was distraught at the thought of her son going to prison, but she insisted on having Rich's back, and this was really hard on her. I'm sure she wondered what had gone so very wrong. She was probably working through grief and shame of her own over all of this. She, like everyone else in the world, needed support when these times got tough. Her go-to person was actually that deceased husband's cousin, Mike Jeffcoat, so she leaned on him. They shared texts and phone calls, and he and his wife, Joan, worked to support her from a distance. Shirley told them that she was afraid that she'd be too much of an emotional mess if she had to be the one to drive little Richard to the jailhouse. So Mike offered to make the hours-long drive to pick him up and take him on that 45-minute drive to the Cobb County jailhouse for her. Oh, what county was his mom living in? DeKalb County. They sound a lot alike. Yeah, okay. It was decided that Mike's wife, Joan, could stay behind and support Shirley while keeping her company while Mike took Richard to the jailhouse. Mm. And then Mike and Joan would spend the night with Shirley so she wouldn't have to be all alone that first night. That's a nice plan. Yeah. Shirley was devastated about her son ruining his life and going to prison. And she was really grateful for this offer. She happily accepted Mike and Joan planned to arrive at Shirley's between 1.30 and 2 p.m. on February 1st. Shirley even broke her own rules. She told them they could bring their dog. Usually, she made them kennel it. <laughs> well, I think that was very nice of her, considering that they were going to a lot of trouble to help her. I agree. So Mike Jeffcoat touched base with Shirley the night prior to the 1st and got all of the planning taken care of. That same night, Richard took his son to dinner and met up with Janine in Starbucks parking lot to make the child exchange. And Richard got a chance to say goodbye to Mia. On February 1st, Richard left his mother's house at 8 a.m. and went to his daughter's medical appointment that started at 8.30. This was highly unusual for him. He never went to these appointments. Janine would usually tell him when the appointment was, and then later tell him what had happened. He was a little late getting there, but that couldn't be helped because his ankle monitor meant he couldn't leave early to get there no matter what. The meeting had already started, and Janine was a bit worried to see him there because they were so used to doing it without him. And the night before, he had told her he would never let anyone have her 
Ugh, that's so creepy. Like she's a dog or a ranch-style house. I know. I mean, she's a woman, she's a person, and nobody owns her. And it's such a big red flag, especially at this point, that he felt entitled to exert this entitlement and control. I mean, you've destroyed her life, taken away her ability to care for her children, and you're headed to prison, but you don't want anyone else to ever be her partner? I know, right? You think he'd be happy for her if she ever found someone. Exactly, right? Every time I hear someone has said that, I worry about the well-being of their ex-partner. But Janine, while disturbed at what he'd said, didn't really feel afraid. She thought it was kind of a stupid remark, but no big deal. Everything at the doctor's office was fine and casual until Richard showed up. Once he got there, everything quickly became uncomfortable and even a little scary. Janine said he was silent and glowering to the point of menacing. The doctor seemed to get it, though. He was very concerned about her safety and insisted on walking her and her daughter to their car because Rich was acting so freaky. Rich returned home at about 9.38 a.m. based on his ankle monitor. And it was at 9.39 a.m. that Mike got a message from Shirley, or at least her phone. It said, why don't you go ahead and read this one? Mike, I really wish you wouldn't come until another weekend. Things are not good here. I can drive him to the jail and get myself home without any problems. Richard has some things he has to take care of this morning, so we don't need to leave here before 2. That's why he originally said for you not to get here before 1.30. He has a lot of things we need to talk about. This message is odd. It's really odd because she was happy that Joan and Mike were coming to support her. Mm-hmm. But it's very odd that the text came seconds after Rich got home. And it just seems a little suspicious. Mm-hmm. Do you think Shirley was already dead when he went to that appointment? Um, that thought did cross my mind. I'm not sure when the last time was that someone actually saw her and he was acting so bizarre at that appointment. I just don't know. Yeah. Anyway, Mike and Joan were super surprised. They'd already headed out. They knew that Shirley would be having a terrible day today. She had such a hard time acknowledging that Rich could do any wrong, and this was not going to be easy. But Mike wanted to respect her space, so he conferred with Joan, and they decided to just turn around and head back home. They didn't know it at the time, but that was the last time anyone would ever hear from Shirley. Or at least her phone, right? Right. I mean, I just don't feel confident that that message had been from Shirley because you don't know who you're talking to over text. That's very true. And if you look at this message and compare it to other ones that she wrote, this one has a lot of Richard inserted into it. Richard thinks this. Richard said that. Here's justifying this Richard. Where her other ones had been, oh my pain, oh my, oh my. Which it's, makes more sense if it's you texting, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Instead of this is all about Richard. It's almost like... Richard's voice was coming through, right? Yeah. And I also think the medical examiner had that very same thought. Because during the trial that's upcoming, when the prosecuting attorney asked him to fix a range for the time of death, he kind of demurred. He turned his head and he said something super vague. And when she more pointedly asked him if he could provide a range for time of death, he looked straight at her, almost like a challenge, and suggested she start with when someone had actually last seen Shirley. And the prosecutor backed right down. 
Oh, so maybe the medical evidence looked like it was before they thought it was. It might be. I think that the prosecutor was trying to keep a tight story, and I don't know if they had everything correct. Yeah, and it's hard to say with time of death. I know that's not as exact as we think it is. Right, right. Anyway, back to Mike. Mike got a second text later that day, and this time it was from Rich. It was sent at 10.25. It said, Thanks again, but as we both told you, she's okay. We need the privacy to talk through some matters. Please call her this weekend to check in. I cannot express how much your help has meant to me during this nightmare. I'll call you in a few weeks from inside. Love, Rich. Hmm. Yeah. He and Joan felt this text confirmed that they were making the correct decision and not going. So they settled back into their lives until much later that evening. So we know that Rich is an inveterate liar, and it's clear that no one really knows what happened here. We don't typically give voice to the murderer when he or she is known to be a liar, but you do have to hear Richard's version to get a clear contextual understanding of what happened. Okay, let's hear it. So, according to Richard, Shirley was still alive on the morning of Friday, February 1st and was the person who sent Mike that uncharacteristic text asking him not to come. He claims she began lunch preparations, planning to eat a leisurely lunch together at 1. This would be before they headed out to the Cobb County Jailhouse. They were allegedly worried about getting there by 5, which was his deadline, because of the Friday afternoon traffic. Plus, it was Super Bowl weekend, so they worried traffic might be heavier than usual. Richard alleges he was walking from the kitchen when someone started banging loudly on the front door. They weren't expecting anyone, and he claimed they were all nervous because of a threatening cartoon thing that had been delivered to his mom's and his ex-wife's mailboxes, and he alleges he and his mom were getting a lot of hang-up calls and strange cars circling their cul-de-sac, but that was never reported to the police, nor was it confirmed by his phone records. Nevertheless, he went to the door, He saw two men in the side light of the door. You know that little window that's at the sides of doors sometimes to let light in? Mm -hmm. And he decided to open it because he saw two gentlemen with guns. That always makes me go, yeah, let's open the door. Oh, yeah. Always, right? (laughs) (laughs) Hi, guys. Yeah. (laughs) At trial, he alternately refers to these two men as monsters or gentlemen, but mostly calls them gentlemen. That's weird. Mm Mm-hmm. He said, they told me to let them in. So what did you do? I let him in. They instructed him and his mother, who was just walking into the living room from the kitchen, to go to the basement of the home. And he claims they dropped the F-bomb a couple of times, but of course he didn't repeat the word in court. He just said F and effing. (laughs) Richard claimed that the first gentleman appeared to be in his 50s, athletically built, and the taller of the two at about six feet tall. He shoved his gun in Shirley's lower back, and they moved toward the stairway to the basement. The younger gentleman, five foot nine, shoulder-length hair, brown eyes, pudgy, and wearing a camo hoodie and jeans, shoved his gun in Richard's back, 
and followed the others. So remember, the one that had his gun in Richard's back has on jeans. Okay. Okay. The basement stairs go down a few steps to a landing, and then the stairway changes directions for the rest of the descent. Mom let out a yelp when she reached the landing, and the pudgy guy somehow kept a gun in Richard's back while moving ahead to the landing on which Richard's mother was standing, and he pushed Shirley down the stairs. That's horrible. I know. The push down the stairs was actually to explain why there was a dent or a hole in the wall at the bottom of the stairs. Okay. So, now that Mom was incapacitated in the story and at the bottom of the stairs, Pudgy Guy again has a gun in Richard's back and is keeping him restrained. And Shirley is at the bottom of the stairs, unable to get up. This is where Richard's testimony starts to conflict with itself. He says... As I moved, like I was going to try to go down the stairs, the guy... Now remember, this is the pudgy guy who pushed Shirley down the stairs and has on a pair of jeans, okay? Dug the pistol into my back and grabbed my shoulder. The gentleman who pushed her down the stairs... Richard now seems to be testifying that the tall athletic man did the pushing, not the pudgy guy holding him back. Mm -hmm. Put his pistol in his back, into the back part of his jeans... But Richard later in his testimony describes Athletic Man as wearing a black waffle top like thermal underwear and Dicky brand khaki pants. Okay. Story not straight. Mm-mm. Athletic Man in the Dicky khaki pants mm-hmm. reportedly ran down the stairs, turned the corner, and came back with a 35-pound dumbbell. He then describes how Athletic Man, who happened to be about his age but actually tall and physically fit by his description smacked his incapacitated mother in the head with it until she stopped moving. Athletic man then instructed Pudgy Guy to bring Richard downstairs. They shoved him over to the tile where the dumbbell rested, which was probably trying to explain why his DNA might be found on that dumbbell. Mm -hmm. And then Athletic Man ran upstairs. Athletic Man's very busy, right? Yeah, he's going all over the place. Yeah. He returned with a kitchen knife and stabbed Shirley's inert body several times. Rich claims he stood there, confused and dumbfounded. When asked what he did, he belligerently answered, There's nothing I could do. I had a pistol to my back. I couldn't believe this was happening. I had no clue who these people were or why they were doing this to us. After this angry final stabbing, according to Richard, the monster calmly turned and looked at Richard pulled out his cell phone, and proceeded to show him pictures of Janine and his children just living their lives. And athletic man said, If you say a single word, they're next. And these are Richard's words. And then they left. So after this frenzied killing where they're running all over the house grabbing weapons, they just walk away? Right. And what did he do? Did he just like wave, shake their hands, give them a Coke? So many levels there, right? Yeah. <laughs> just so many levels. I mean, it just doesn't seem like the ending to a frenzied home invasion and murder. No. Because they didn't steal anything. No. And if they're professional killers, where are their weapons? Yeah. A professional hitman would have brought at least their own gun. And or they knife. had guns. Yeah. Why are they hitting her with a dumbbell if they're carrying guns and their whole job is to kill her? Well, I think their job was to kill him. 
Well, he was sitting right there, apparently completely helpless and whining. And they didn't touch him? Yeah. They just said, don't tell anybody. It's a secret. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. Because his mother didn't have any enemies. No, she didn't. Anyway, Richard says after they left, he went upstairs. He packed his little backpack with the clothes and what he called basic toiletries that he thought he might need. And he pieced on out to Nashville. He didn't call for help for his mom. He didn't call his ex-wife to warn her that she and the children might be in danger. He just left, taking his mom's cell phone and driving mom's Lexus because, as he said, it had more gas in it than my car. It had a bigger tank, and I had no idea where I was going or where I was going to end up. And he figured her car would be easier to sleep in. He was out of the house and down the road in a matter of minutes. His ankle monitor indicates he left her home at 2.30 p.m. So honestly, it's just that his mom's car was nicer than his. Oh, exactly, because about 20 minutes into this ride, he stops for gas Hmm. and a candy bar. (laughs) But Obviously a man terrified for his life, right? Well, contextualize that and unpack it all. He... He just watched his mom be murdered in a frenzied murder, and he doesn't call for help? No, he doesn't do anything. And he just he, leaves. And he knows his ex-wife has been threatened, and he leaves? Mm-hmm. With his kids at just risk? vulnerable. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he never called a single person again. According to him, he made sure it appeared he was driving toward the Cobb County Jail so that if they were monitoring his ankle bracelet, they would see he was most likely complying with that order to appear to serve his prison sentence. But he blew by the jailhouse and instead happened to have the tool he would need to cut off his ankle monitor. So at 4.12 p.m. at the I-75 exit of Cass White Road, he cut it off and ditched it in the trash under a pizza box at a truck stop and headed for Tennessee. What presence of mind after watching a horrible murder to just have the right tool on hand to cut your ankle bracelet. Mm -hmm. And what a nice place to take it off before you make that turn Mm -hmm. to where you're going. He would later ditch both his and his mom's phones, but they were never recovered. He drove to Nashville, which is about four hours away from his mom's house, and he arrived there somewhere between 7 and 8 o'clock that night. So he goofed off or maybe stopped to do lunch in Chattanooga or something on the way. I mean, who knows? He should have known they'd catch him just in Nashville. You'd think so. But like most criminals, he thought he was much more clever than the law and that he'd committed the perfect crime. (laughs) This was an exceedingly imperfect crime. (laughs) I agree. Anyway, back at home, well, kind of at home, it was the Jeffcoats' home in Birmingham, Alabama. Mike got a little worried when Janine called him a little after five to tell him Rich had cut his anklet and was running. Mike reached out to Shirley at 5.17 to see what was going on and if she was all right. The text said, call me please. There was no response. Mike tried to call both Shirley and Richard several times to no avail. Now Mike was really worried. 
He was conferring with Janine and a few other family members trying to figure out what to do. One of the family members called for a welfare check. The officers did go out, but nothing was found to be out of place while they were looking in the windows and checking the doors. They spent a couple of hours actually trying to reach Shirley or find a non-invasive way into the house because nothing was amiss, but they finally gave up and left. Mike, Jeffcoat, and Janine decided it was time to take action. Janine still had a key to the house, and she and Mike agreed to meet at the entrance to Shirley's subdivision accompanied by Janine's dad. They could give him a key so he could check things out even if the police couldn't. Mike headed out to Atlanta at 4.30 a.m. the next morning. They met up and he got the key. He refused their offers to go into the house with him. He was worried about what they might find there. He had his gun and he figured this was the best way to proceed in finding Shirley. He went into the house and cleared the rooms as he went and he found Shirley dead at the bottom of the stairs. He called 911 for help at 9.30 a.m. They buried Shirley 12 days later on Valentine's Day. And his brother said he needs to man up and give himself up. But he didn't. I think he did all of this because he didn't want to man up. He didn't want to take responsibility for his actions. Such a lack of man there. Mm-hmm. Just, oh. So speculation ran wild. The police were thinking Richard had probably shaved off his thinning hair to change his look. Janine was worried about her children and herself. She remembered how menacing and angry he seemed that last time she was with him and how the doctor had walked her to her car. So do you think they were in danger that day of that appointment? If Shirley was already dead, yeah, I do. What do you think? I think so. We've seen too many cases where they kill their parents and then go and kill whoever else they think has wronged them. Right. So that's what I would guess. I think that doctor saved her life quite possibly. Yeah, definitely diffused the situation a bit. Mm-hmm. And Janine was pretty smart. They were all very afraid now because yeah. they knew what he was capable of and they knew that he knew the intimate details of their lives. So this was a very difficult time for them. When asked where Rich might have run to by Fox 5 Atlanta, Janine suggested Savannah, New Orleans, or the Florida Panhandle. And his brother Rob figured he'd run to Mississippi, where they were from originally, or Louisiana, because he really liked the Mardi Gras lifestyle. When asked where he might hang out, Janine nailed it on the head with one word, bars, and then added Irish bars. His brother's first thought was Irish pubs and drinking and shooting the breeze. After interviewing family members extensively, investigators seemed to really miss the boat. They ignored the fact that Janine had actually been the cool half of that marriage. They announced he was probably living in Oxford, England or somewhere on a tropical island because that is where Janine had taken them for their vacations. These investigators didn't realize he was more grunge than James Bond. They would never find him in the places they were looking. So what happened next? Well, now in Nashville, Richard changed his name to Mick Malveaux, date of birth 225-1980. He said that he thought that name sounded cool and Cajun. 
Now, interestingly, his real date of birth is February 23rd, 1974. So now he's six years younger? Mm-hmm. I think that was a little vanity change, right? <laughs> yeah. So creating this false identity was pretty easy and convenient for him because he'd made himself a fake driver's license bearing that name a few years ago. Interesting. Yeah, a little odd, right? Mm-hmm. But now he was from Louisiana. He claimed he'd graduated from LSU, and he even put a few LSU stickers on his dead mother's car for good measure. He began growing out a beard and growing out his thinning hair just in the back to avoid detection. Because a mullet makes you look innocent. Yeah, somehow he thought that growing a mullet would be a good disguise. <laughs> right? What a dork. I know. But as Mick, he found himself a bartending job at Betty's, a dive bar on Nashville's west side. So not quite an Irish pub. Not quite, but close. And then he used a dating app to get himself an unsuspecting new girlfriend. Oh, that poor woman. Yeah. So he started seeing Kelly in early July. Hmm. He kind of sounds like the drugstore version of Peter Zimmer, right? Yeah. Um, from episode 16, Ugly Surprises. Yeah. He, uh, Peter Zimmer was good at this, and it sounds like this guy was not that good at it. No, he definitely thought he was pretty smooth, though. Yeah, was this Kelly suspicious when she found out that he didn't have a place to live and was trying to sweep her off her feet? Well, he never quite told her he was homeless. Hmm. He told her that he was couch surfing with a cousin in town because he was an aspiring writer and had written over 140 pages of his novels since moving to Nashville in early February. Nashville was his muse. He claimed he'd been a marketing exec, but had walked away from all of that so he could travel and live his dream. After his book was written, he planned on going back to his old life. Like a Hallmark movie, right? Oh, yeah, this does sound like a Hallmark movie. Yeah, um, not very good writing of his fake identity, right? Mm, not at all. So he did work on progressing the relationship quickly in an attempt to get Kelly to let him move in with her. Mm -hmm. But Kelly wasn't really ready for that. She didn't mind if he was at her place on occasion, and she even gave him a key at some point. But by the end of the summer, he was there all the time, and that was really not cool with her. I think we've all had that guy, right? Yeah, it seems like some people just um, move way too fast, and in his case, he had to because he was living in Alexis. Right, right. And she never would have been okay with him even being there short term if she knew who he really was. Oh, yeah. She had no idea who he really was or what he'd done. He kept that a secret pretty well. He snowed her with his LSU story and used his mother's car as a signifier of the wealth he had back at home. Ah. Oh. Yeah. He worked hard to deceive Kelly. He did tell her that his mom was dead, but he told her that she had died a couple of years earlier of leukemia and that his dad had died first of a heart condition. So there's a little bit of truth. Yeah. He would cry about being an orphan, and he said that he and his mom didn't get along well. He also talked about having been married and then divorced several years ago. But he said they'd never had children, oh. only a miscarriage. Oh. Yeah. And he also told her he had a niece who had cerebral palsy, but he never mentioned a fake nephew or son. Wow. Yeah. And Kelly recalled at trial how he would use his mother's car, which he passed off as his own, mm -hmm. to build cred. It was his evidence that he was a successful businessman who was just taking a little time out from life to write a novel. But he still had money. Oh, so he couldn't have done this in his Honda. 
Probably not. I think it was still a very thin plan, but the Lexus helped a little. Yeah. Anyway, Kelly was getting annoyed at him because he seemed to have settled into her home by mid-September without helping with rent and without even asking. Hmm. He was staying at her place against her protestations when the car became a problem on September 26th. There had been some break-ins to vehicles, and when the police were running the plates to see whose car had been broken into, Uh they realized that Shirley, who was dead, had had her car broken into in Nashville. So, of course, they caught him. (laughs) Yeah. At some point, something was going to happen, right? He didn't even change the plates. I mean... He is, like, the worst criminal. Yeah, I just feel like he didn't put a lot of effort into anywhere in life. No, kind of lazy. Yeah. I hate to use the word lazy, but kind of lazy. Yeah, he just didn't seem to care enough to do a good job at anything, even running away. Yeah, so eight months? Yeah. He was gone eight months. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess that girlfriend finally got the space she was needing. She did, but what a terrible way to do it, right? (laughs) Yeah. You can't get this man out of your house until the police do. (laughs) So... Good riddance, though. But anyway, long story short, he was in hiding for eight months in Nashville and was caught because he couldn't part with the car that gave him status. And he didn't call anyone in that entire time? No, he didn't call or send, like, an anonymous letter with no return address, like, nothing to say, Hi, Janine, I think you and the children are in danger, so I have run away. (laughs) You know, he could have sent a postcard from a different city. There's a lot of things he could have done if he wanted to warn them of some danger. Don't you think it's funny that his alibi is, I am the ultimate coward? (laughs) It's a little embarrassing, honestly. If you're going to lie, make yourself look good, right? Right. But while he was in jail awaiting trial, Richard went right back to his old behaviors, trying to find someone to save him. So despite not having talked to them for eight months, he began incessantly calling his family, his brother Rob in particular, and he began a letter-writing campaign, trying to explain his problems away and asking for money. I'm innocent. Please donate to my cause. That sounds familiar. (laughs) Yeah. But he was uh, right back at it, and poor Rob was suddenly barraged with cries for help from Richard. Despite being estranged. Yeah. But they weren't estranged in this kind of mean or vengeful way. Rob had obviously loved and kept up with his mom. They just weren't doing family things together anymore. My bet, based on Rob was saying after Richard disappeared, is that Richard always took advantage of Shirley, and Shirley always let herself be taken advantage of, and Rob probably just couldn't take it anymore. Yeah, probably not. I think it's really hard for the other kids to watch that. Mm -hmm. So, especially because Richard thought it was okay to call Rob, collect from the jail a couple hundred times, and send him somewhere around 50 pushy, bullying postcards, proclaiming his innocence and trying to force Rob to clean up his mess and proclaim Rich's innocence. Wow. I think that Richard was used to kind of just pushing his family around. Mm, At least his mom, right? Mm Mm-hmm. To another family member, he wrote to say that if they found his fingerprints on either the knife or the dumbbell, it was easily explained since he used the knife regularly and owned the dumbbell. Did you say he was the dumbbell? Owned. I said owned. (laughs) Okay, just checking. (laughs) (laughs) And he never even once mentioned the two mysterious gentlemen to these family members and ex-family members because he also was harassing Janine as he wrote copious letters to them from the jail. He never mentioned the two men, and he says it was because he didn't have confidence in the police. 
never that he wanted to warn his family to stay safe. Wow. Yeah. His brother Robert nailed it on the head when he told Fox 5 Atlanta News, it's just mental harassment is what it is. Richard knew how to whine and wheedle, but unfortunately he'd murdered the last person it worked on, so no help was coming his way. So sad. Yeah, and of course Richard's probation for the theft and exploitation cases was revoked. But he wasn't really on probation. Yeah, well, it's a little complicated, so let's walk through it. He pled guilty to the theft of around $450,000, and the judge sentenced him to 15 years in prison and 15 years of parole. Okay. So when Richard was living at his mother's house post-sentencing, he had a short reprieve called voluntary surrender before he was to check in and start that 15-year prison sentence. Okay, but why? Well, with white-collar crimes, the convicted person has been deemed safe. Not really safe, but not violent, not a menace, or a threat to society. So judges, at their own discretion or at the request of a convicted person, can order a voluntary surrender. Oh, so privilege. I think systematically it definitely is privilege because it is just for white-collar crimes, and we all know what that means. Well, we all know white-collar crimes often turn into red-collar crimes. That's true, and we know that, but I think that the assumption is that because these are people who obviously have access to money, they're somehow more genteel than your average criminal. So many levels. I know. It seems kind of silly, but anyway... Mm -hmm. During this voluntary surrender, the convicted person is most definitely under the supervision of the courts, like a supervised release. Okay. He just hasn't been released yet, right? That's right. So he has to obey the rules, wear the ankle monitor, and all of that, because he is not a free agent. And also, a huge bond has to be put up guaranteeing he will show up to serve his time as promised. Another example of how this is only really for people who come from privilege. Mm Mm-hmm. But that is the bond that Shirley paid for by putting up her own house. And he promised to, I don't know, follow the law and stay out of trouble. And in this case, Richard breached his promise, and murdering his mother meant he'd broken the law again. And even if he were to be found innocent of that, fleeing and hiding would also be a violation of his voluntary surrender agreement, which would then revoke the parole he'd been sentenced to in lieu of the extra-long prison sentence. Oh. So the 15 years for theft and exploitation would still have to be served, and because they revoked his 15 years of parole, he was now looking at 30 years where he would actually be in prison, and that's before he started the trial for the murder of his mother. Got it. So it took forever for this trial to happen, as it often happens, right? Mm-hmm. So first, of course, Richard had absconded and hid from the authorities. Then after his arrest, there was the usual time it takes to prepare for trial. And then COVID. That's right. COVID suspended all jury trials for quite some time. And Richard's murder trial was rather short and uneventful when it finally happened. The world watched as Richard took the stand and tried to figure out how to make his life sound at least a little bit believable and... In my opinion, he failed. I think so, too. The prosecutor did a great job, but she kept forgetting that he was divorced. Janine was not his wife, and I would love to have had the prosecutor acknowledge that at least once. Janine was the ex-wife. And the defense attorney, oof, he was a jerk to Janine. He behaved in a way that seemed totally uncalled for, given the circumstances. Now, I know we talked about this a little, and... 
after watching a few more cross-examinations, we talked about how maybe he was just doing his job, even though it came off as a real jerk. Yeah, his job with her, a lot of the point of what he was doing was trying to make her seem like she was a liar because he didn't want her testimony to be able to be used to show that this man had a bad temper or a reputation for violence. Oh, well, let's talk about that. So he did have a bad temper and a reputation for violence, or he didn't? Well, it's a little bit complicated. He obviously didn't have charges for domestic violence on his file. We would Mm -hmm. know that, right? Right. But the defense attorney, he asked Janine, he said, your husband didn't have a reputation for violence, right? And she said, no, but he had a very scary temper. And he said, but as you said, he did not have a reputation for physical violence, right? And there's this kind of long pause. And Janine replied, he was physical with me once. And the defense attorney invited her to tell him about it. And Janine described how somewhere toward the end of their marriage, they were arguing in the bedroom and he pushed her to the ground. She had hit her head on the bed. And the attorney tries to exert this notion that they maybe had like pushed each other around maybe it was like a mutual fight but she said no he pushed me and i hit my head he pushed me down i didn't do anything to which the defense attorney of course replied well did you call the police and she said no and he said did you make a report and she said no because i was scared of what he would do if i reported it and he says did you file for divorce and she said not at that time And then he starts questioning her about why she didn't file for divorce then, but did days after her husband was arrested for fraud. And then he said, so it was because he took your life away. To which she replied, he ruined our lives, and that's why I divorced him. So the attorney is kind of, I don't think what he did would rise to the level of what they call like badgering the witness, but I think that he went really hard with her when he didn't really need to. Right, because he kind of insinuated that she was some kind of gold digger. You've been there for 18 years, and as soon as it got bad, you ran, or something like that. Yeah, which isn't even relevant to the trial. Mm -mm. Um, But I think that he was just trying to garner sympathy for his client, Mm -hmm. Um, maybe make it feel to people like the reason why he had done all these bad things was because his wife pressured him, right? Right. And he said... Well, you enjoyed those 18 or so good years. I think you termed it as jet setters. And she shrugged and reminded him that they were both successful in making money. Remember, she's a veterinarian. She's not someone who never got an education. She's not a gold digger, obviously. She married this man, had two children. Um, Stuck around for a long time. It's really hard for attorneys to introduce misogyny into it when there's an equality in earning of the wages. It is a lot harder, um, but he still tried. Mm Mm-hmm. This defense attorney also tried to build sympathy by trying to establish that Rich was this great dad. Mm -hmm. Like, he was there for Jack's activities, and he spent time with Mia, which Janine refuted, saying, well, he didn't do things with Mia as often. He never assisted in her custodial care that she required as a disabled person. I did all of that by myself. And he never came with me to her doctor appointments, except for the one on the day of the murder. Ooh. Yeah. And she said that they did do things together as a family, But then he started drinking heavily and showing them his temper, which was very scary. And the defense attorney says, I never read a single report that you were afraid of his temper. And she says, I didn't talk about it, but it was very scary. And it happened probably in the couple of months before he was arrested. She didn't know he was about to be arrested, but he later told her he knew and hadn't elected to talk to her about it. 
Oh, so he just went about the business of selling off everything and not paying the bills, knowing he wouldn't be there to hold the bag and clean up the mess. That's right. He wanted to do what he wanted to do, and he didn't care how it was going to affect his family. But she told the defense attorney that that was when he started coming home, very, very drunk and angry. His temper scared us badly. Mm -hmm. There was one night when Jack and I were looking for somewhere to run and hide, but Mia was upstairs sleeping, and we couldn't wake her up, and we didn't want to leave her. And at this point, Janina is, of course, near tears, and the defense attorney as much as called her a liar. He says, you never mentioned it to the DA. And she said, yes, she had. You didn't mention it to Cobb County, correct? And she said, no. She had told them he had a drinking problem and was angry. And she said, you never mentioned that to the Cobb County judge, correct? And, of course, she hadn't. She had never talked to the judge. Mm-hmm. And he says, you didn't mention it to the police. And she said, yes, she had. So she mentioned it to everyone. Yeah, except for the judge. But, of course, she wasn't <laughs> talking to the judge in yeah. a case about stealing people's money about his temper. Right. Well, and she wouldn't have had any reason to have a conversation with that judge. No, she was divorcing him. She was trying to leave him and get away from all. So then the defense attorney, ignoring everything she said, and I'm sure destroying years of healing, he kind of starts to yell at her. And he says, you never mentioned any of that to any of those persons up until you knew you would be called as a witness in this case. This attorney is kind of icky. Yeah, it's kind of, it feels excessive. Of course, you need to do a good job in cross-examination, but she wasn't on trial here, and I do not think that strategically it was really that helpful to yell at her. Well, and it's also, I am not an attorney, but I've always heard that attorneys should never ask a question they don't know the answer to, Mm -hmm. and he kept asking her questions that he had no idea how she was going to answer. Yeah, it was just strange. Mm-hmm. It wasn't good. I think that it was probably fueled more by his client's desires than by actual legal strategy. Mm. But she just reiterated that she didn't talk about it much because it was scary. She'd honestly blocked a lot of it out because she was traumatized by everything he'd put them through. But her son remembered, and they talked about it. Oh. And the attorney just kept trying to frame it as like this recent recollection. Um, And she said, no, I've been working on this with a lot of therapy. And he didn't like this reply, so he kind of switched gears and tried to just paint her as someone trying to, I don't know, make him look bad. Because she hated him or something, right? Yeah, he said, let's be honest. At this point in time, you hate Richard. And after a pause, she agreed, of course. It's kind of silly, um, because he's obviously not trying to make a case that she had murdered her ex-mother-in-law and framed him for the murder or anything. Mm -hmm. But then he starts to take a new tack. He says... You and Richard continued to correspond after his arrest, correct? And she said, yes, out of necessity, because we were trying to get divorced. And she said, you allowed him to see his kids once he was out on bond. And she said, of course. And every court in this country would have howled if she had not let him see those children. Yes, even in cases where he's violently abused the mother, the children usually have to see him, Mm -hmm. even if he's in jail for it. Exactly. So... See, says this attorney, you weren't concerned about your kid's safety at all. Thank you, Perry Mason. You got it wrong again. Yeah, it just didn't make sense. And he's just, he just keeps going on. He's like, you're saying all this because you hate him. You weren't there the day of the murder, so you don't know if he did this. Well, she never claimed to be a witness to the murder, did she? No, he just is haranguing her for no apparent reason. (sighs) But anyway, it was not effective. It was silly and pretty gross. Mm -hmm. But... On the afternoon that they received their jury instructions, the jury went to lunch at 12.10 p.m., and they were supposed to start their work of deliberating right after that. Mm -hmm. 
and it took them less than an hour. For lunch? No, for the verdict. No way. Yeah, it took them one hour, seven minutes, and 54 <gasps> seconds to decide. I kind of imagine them walking to the jury room, choosing a foreman, and taking the initial vote. Usually, you know, the jury takes the initial vote just to kind of gauge where they're at. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking everyone must have voted guilty from the get-go because they were back in the courtroom with their verdict that fast. Wow, that's a record. Yeah, especially for a murder. But I think fleeing afterwards is pretty compelling to a jury. Right. So Richard was found guilty of malice murder, which is the worst degree of murder possible in the state of Georgia. Next, he was found guilty on two counts of felony murder, and next were aggravated assault, guilty, and possession of a knife during the commission of a felony, guilty. Wait, I always wonder this. How could they charge him and convict him on three murder counts? I mean, he can only kill her once. Because if he tries to kill her again, she's already dead, right? So (laughs) I know they do this all the time, but I totally don't get it. Yeah, it's kind of weird um, to hear someone convicted on three counts of murder for one event of murder. Mm -hmm. But they kind of collapse. So what they did is they charged him with malice murder, which means the killer deliberately intended to cause the death of another person unlawfully and with malice aforethought. We all know malice is the intention to kill without the justification, excuse, or mitigation not anger or hatred towards someone, as some people will try and convince you, right? That's interesting, because malice usually does mean anger and hatred, right? Yeah. But not in the law. Not in the law. It just means malice of forethought means you planned it. Right. So it's an unprovoked murder wherein the killer shows an abandoned and malignant heart. They did not prove premeditation, just malice, but any signs of premeditation can be used by the jury to infer malice. So in some states, this is capital murder, where the person will either be executed or get life without parole. Mm-hmm. So then they charged him with felony murder, which doesn't always mean that you meant to kill someone. That wasn't your main plan. Mm-hmm. But that's when you cause the death of another person by committing a felony. So it's irrespective of malice. Okay. They intended to murder using an aggravated assault, and the person died. You sometimes see this in bank robberies, right? Where they right. shoot someone while committing the crime. Right, right. So I'm assuming that one of these felony murders was tied to the assault with a knife and the other was tied to the assault with a barbell. Oh, okay. So then there was, of course, a second felony murder. And then there was aggravated assault with an offensive weapon, the knife. Mm -hmm. You don't even have to prove they injured the person, only that they had the weapon and intended to cause injury, which obviously he did. Mm -hmm. And then lastly, they charged him with aggravated assault of a person over 65 years old, intending to hurt someone regardless of any actual injuries. Wow, so even if he, like got the barbell, planned on hitting her with it, and didn't? hmm Wow. He could still have been convicted of some of these crimes. Of assault. Yeah. So what the prosecutors are doing is they're indicting him on a kind of a cascade of crimes. It's almost like a little menu for the jury. Mm. Here's the worst that we think he did, the next worst, and the least worst for the same event. Mm-hmm. The lesser crimes, they're often called lesser included crimes right. or lesser included offenses, and they're vacated, and the worst one getting conviction stands. And that's what he'll be sentenced based on. Okay, so... They kind of collapse into one crime. Okay, so if they say someone was convicted on three counts of murder, it means they didn't think the murder fit one of the lesser charges, but it did fit one of the more serious charges, right? Basically, because it fits the more serious charge, it will always fit the lesser charge. So they roll them all up. So it kind of just rolls up into one. Got it. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Yeah. So 
As is typical in these cases, he was given the opportunity to say a few words after conviction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, oftentimes we see people apologizing to their friends and family, saying, I'm so sorry I did this, you know, I don't want to do this again, telling people they love them for the last time. Um, Some people, like Chandler Halderson in episode 21, Mm -hmm. they like to do things like blurt out that they've been wrongfully convicted and (laughs) beg people to listen to them and help them build an appeal. (laughs) Yeah. So it just depends on their personality and kind of who they are, but Rich did what he pretty much always did. He stated he'd been raised in a wonderful home by wonderful parents. Nice. Yeah, and then he switched gears and whined. He whined about everything he'd lost. His marriage, his kids who were barely speaking to him despite him not contacting them for eight months. Right. Referring to the Cobb County case, he said things have never been the same after the arrest. And then he excused his behavior in saying, I fell victim to the ultimate drug there is, money. And he felt that that somehow made him redeemable but moving right along he said he'd have to figure out how to get everything he lost back someday kind of with a shrug i can't go back and change things nothing about his mother but he said that he would accept the court sentence and then tried to remind them that he had once been a lawyer (laughs) and that he respected the system and the justice and the jury's verdict i'm sorry but does he you'd think that if he respected it at all he wouldn't be sitting where he is he wouldn't have because he Mm. wouldn't have stolen from his clients so, he also said, it's a very surreal experience to be sitting here. And then he said to his family that he wished none of us had to go through it, endure the pain of this entire ordeal. And he seemed to think the trial was the problem, not the murder. Um, O-M-G. Not to mention the pain his mother went through. Right. He seems to have forgotten that this is something that happened to her, not to him. Mm-hmm. But he told them that he wanted them all back in his life. And he continued complaining that his kids didn't want to talk to him. In fact, wanted nothing to do with him since being arrested in Nashville. He said, I have no idea what they're like. I have no idea what they look like, what their everyday life is like. And he sent his ex-wife a thinly veiled message about wanting to be back in control. And then whining that it would certainly be difficult to be a part of their lives from prison. So, just more self-pity. So, skirting the issue that he'd run away and failed to contact any of them during the eight months that he was gone, ignoring the fact that he had betrayed them and let them down consistently and constantly. Yeah. I mean, his poor little girl didn't even have a vehicle that could help her go places with her wheelchair, which she needed, because he decided to steal from people. And they lost their home. Yeah. I mean, they lost everything. She had to rebuild from the get-go. Yeah, which is terrible. But then Mm -hmm. he kind of turned into religious speak he said life is a blessing whatever the form may take (laughs) again ignoring the fact that he stole that from his mother and refusing to take any responsibility for what form his life had taken right he had no remorse for his exploitation of people you know he had a lot of elderly clients and he had been forging their signatures stealing their money i mean he had no remorse for murdering his own mother and no remorse for the pain fear and, and humiliation he put his children and brother through when he skipped town after killing his mother His attorney immediately popped out of his seat, which he couldn't seem to master those times when the judge entered the courtroom, but he asked for the possibility of parole and that all the additional counts of assault and using a weapon be vacated. Because he whined a lot? Or, I mean, what was the reasoning? I don't think he really (laughs) had a good reason. He just asked for it, just kind of out of form. Okay. Right? But then it was the judge's turn. Without commenting on the self-pitying soliloquy, She sentenced him to life without the possibility of parole and then an additional five years to be served consecutively for using a knife in the commission of a murder. 
And this is all in addition to the 30 years he was to spend in prison because of his exploitation theft by taking convictions, right? Yeah, so if you're counting all together, he has life plus 35 years. Hmm. So, I mean, we all know that what that really means, though, is that he's probably not getting out early. Not that he would have any good behavior anyway. Right, right. Well, he didn't get even a parole. He just got life without parole, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, after the sentencing, Richard was unceremoniously cuffed and taken away, and his family made a statement through his brother, Rob. Oh. Yeah. Rob said... On behalf of my entire family, I can say we are very pleased with the outcome. We do feel the verdict is just, and we feel that the punishment was appropriate for his actions. He commented on Rich's testimony, saying that it was preposterous and absurd. Then, according to Morgan Citizen, he went on saying, We were saddened at his comments during his sentencing, that he didn't even mention my mother once. That's so heartbreaking, and so hard for a family to grieve through this when he won't even take responsibility for what he did. Yeah, and I think any possibility of reconciling with anyone in his family was destroyed by the fact that he's sitting there at the trial for murdering his own mother, and he can't even say, I'm really sorry that I killed my mom. Mm -hmm. I shouldn't have done that. Just, oh, we're all going through it. It's just all hard for all of us. He he recentered it. He did. So we can't really tell you, you know, where is everyone now, Mm -hmm. because that's where everyone is. Yeah. The trial wrapped up on May 24th, 2023. Janine got the wish she'd stated in an interview with Atlanta News First. I hope he goes away for the rest of his life. And so hopefully now she can care for her children in peace without worrying about danger from their father in their future. I think she earned that in that eight months. Yeah. And there has been a change in court procedure. Defendants in white-collar crimes are no longer granted a voluntary surrender. This case taught the courts that all criminals pose a danger to society. Is that everywhere or just for Georgia? Just for Georgia, but I think it's a good example. I think it is an excellent example. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening. We're so happy to be back with you. Yes, and we'd like to thank, of course, Jade Brown for the music and the Atlanta Constitution, Law and Crime, The Morgan Citizen, Fox 5 Atlanta, Clark County Tribune, The Clarion Ledger, The Jackson Daily News, 11alive.com, and The Morgan Citizen for all of the information that we used to create this podcast. Yes, and of course we want to thank you, our listeners. Your comments and your support mean the world to us. They do. So, this has been the Parasite Podcast, and remember... Always sleep with one eye open. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down.